Our sermon today is taken from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. This is the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Thus says the Lord. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, thank you for the life and ministry, Lord, of the Apostle Paul. We thank you, Lord, for his deep theological knowledge. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant us wisdom and understanding, Lord, as we read the book of Romans, Lord, which is a challenging book to study. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to transform our lives, to have our hearts transformed, Lord, that we would love you more, that we would obey you more. And that was the heart, O oh Lord, of parts, Paul's theology and his message to the Romans. Bless us, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, who would later become known as the Apostle to the Gentiles, was born in a city called Tarsus, which was located in Southeast Asia Minor. Having never met Jesus before, he was crucified. <coughs> Paul was not one of his original 12 disciples. Before his conversion to Christ, Paul's name in the Hebrew was Saul. And Saul was a Pharisee who was highly respected among his peers as one of the elite members of the Pharisee sect. And he even described himself as being blameless according to the law. So we can get an understanding for what kind of a person he was. He was a self-righteous person, an extremely self-righteous person, a person who believed in his own righteousness before God, that his own righteousness was acceptable before God. And the book of Acts tells us that Saul was present at the death of Stephen in Jerusalem. In fact, he both authorized and approved it. And shortly after that, he began a vicious campaign of terror and persecution against the Christian church. But as he was on the road to Damascus to carry out his plan to kill and to persecute Christians, he was struck blind by a light from heaven as he was confronted by the risen Jesus Christ and then commissioned to preach the gospel. After his conversion, he changed his name to Paul and began to be known worldwide as the Apostle to the Gentiles. Paul went on to write approximately 13 books in the New Testament, including the book of Romans, which is the subject of our study today. And Paul's letter uh, to the Church of Rome contains not only his deep theological knowledge, but it also provides us with a clear exposition of the doctrines of sin, grace, and redemption through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's my hope, uh, my hope personally, uh, that as we study this letter of Paul to the Romans, 
It challenges our understanding of Christianity as we see the radical claims of the gospel of grace. Now, it's important to remember that Paul himself did not establish the church in Rome, nor had he ever even met personally any of the Christians who were there. And since he had no prior relationship with the Christians in Rome, it was important for him at the very beginning of his letter to establish who he was as a follower of Christ and what he was all about as a believer. So at the very beginning of his letter to the church in Rome, in his greeting, in verse 1, he explains who he was personally and where he got his authority. And it's important to remember that for most of his life, Paul was an extremely proud man, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who thought very highly of himself while looking down on other people. And yet, if you'll notice that at the very beginning of his letter to the Romans, in verse 1, he introduces himself as Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, ironically, in Latin, the name Paul means small or humble. And since he was a Roman citizen, Paul was probably aware of the fact that even his very name conveyed a sense of humility to his audience. So he refers to himself in his letter uh, to the Romans as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word servant in the Greek literally means slave. Most likely, the, Romans, uh, the Roman audience would have understood that he was talking about being a slave of Caesar. So the Romans would probably uh, have thought that, wow, this once proud and self-righteous man is now referring to himself as a slave. A slave who is now called by God to be an apostle. And that's really no different from our very own testimony as Christians, right? We have also been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we too were once proud and self-righteous, having been enslaved to sin. But now, we also, like Paul, have become servants or slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been called by God also to follow Jesus. And now with that thought in mind, we'll look at our passage today under five headings. Five headings. The producer of the gospel, the end of verse 1. The promise of the gospel, verse 2. The person of the gospel, verses 3 and 4. The provision of the gospel, verse 5. And the purpose of the gospel, verses 5 and 6. But first, the producer of the gospel. Look at the end of verse 1 with me. Paul says that there he had been set apart for the gospel of God. Now notice here that Paul says that the gospel is the gospel of God. It's good news that we as Christians proclaim to others. And God alone is the producer of it. He created it. He himself brought it into existence. And it's invested, therefore, with God's very own authority. It is a gospel that both comes from God and is about God. And therefore, it has his authority. It has the authority of the very nature and character of God himself. It's not a human invention. It did not originate with Paul, nor did it originate with any of the other disciples. 
but was revealed to them and entrusted to them by God himself. You know, as Christians, at times we get accused by other people as we share the gospel with them of being bigoted and short-sighted, of trying to force our opinions onto other people, of trying to force them to believe something that may be true for us, but not for them. They say, yeah, that's, uh, that's your truth. Uh, that's good for you. If you believe that that makes you happy, go for it. But don't try to force your opinions onto me. After all, the Bible was written by men, right? So it's just their own opinions. There's no authority. Something they invented in order to control the masses. So I really don't believe it. I have my own truth that I live by. You see, sadly, these people fail to understand that the gospel is the gospel of God. It's good news from God himself personally to sinners. And so when people reject the authority of the Bible, when they reject his messengers who, who come to proclaim the gospel to them, what they're really rejecting is the very authority of God himself. Because according to Paul, first and foremost, the gospel is the gospel of God. It comes directly from God. It is not a human invention. It was not invented by Paul, nor was it invented by you or by me. And this is because God himself produced the gospel. And notice how Paul moves from the producer of the gospel to the promise of the gospel in verse 2. Verse 2 reads, Which he, that is God, promised beforehand through his apostles in the Holy Scriptures. Here, Paul tells us plainly that the gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, why is it so important to us that the gospel was promised before in the Old Testament? Well, Paul here is making a subtle argument for the unity of Scripture. You see, he wants the Roman Christians, the Roman Christians who, whom he's writing to, to understand uh, the importance and significance of both the Old and New Testaments. And so he's telling them that the gospel was, that, is, that was preached in the Old Testament, the gospel that was preached by Paul himself, by Jesus and the apostles, has its very foundation in the Old Testament. And the New Testament gospel of salvation by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ was also taught in the Old Testament. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the actual fulfillment of what had already been revealed in small type form in the Old Testament. So beginning with the promise of salvation in the book of Genesis 3.15, uh, through a descendant of Eve who had crushed the head of the serpent, on to the call of Abraham, uh, as God promised him, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, up until the kingdom of David, where God promised him that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses and the prophets all testify to this very same truth. That means that there is a direct continuity between the way of salvation in Christ in both the Old and New Testaments. So people 
And both the Old and New Testaments were saved in exactly the same way. Why is this important? Why is this important to us? Well, this teaches us that there has, there's, there's always been one people of God and one church of God in human history. If you are a Christian today, brothers and sisters, you are a son of daughter of Abraham by faith. You are his spiritual offspring. You were included in God's mind when he came to Abraham and told him that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You are in his mind. And all of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are yours in Christ Jesus. And one day, friends, you will enter into the fullness of those blessings. Things like eternal life, the heavenly Jerusalem, seeing and savoring the face and the presence of God. They are all yours, friends, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the way of salvation was, is, and always will be the same for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. So there's absolutely no inconsistency in the Bible, in the way of salvation, because the gospel is first and foremost rooted and grounded, Paul tells us, in the Old Testament. By implication, Paul is telling his audience and us that as Christians, we cannot completely ignore the Old Testament scriptures. You know, I've heard some Christians say that now that we have Jesus, we don't need the Old Testament anymore because it focuses on the wrath of God, right? And Jesus has come to deliver us from that wrath. So we don't need to study the Old Testament anymore. The New Testament, though, they say, is all about grace. And that's all we need to be concerned with. (laughs) Paul is saying that no, that is not the case. The gospel is rooted and grounded first in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in the New. So the Old Testament teaches us first and foremost why we need Jesus, why salvation through faith in Jesus alone is necessary, and why Jesus had to come into the world to live and to die, give his life as a ransom for sinners. You see, in order to truly appreciate and accept The good news of the gospel, a person must first understand why he needs the gospel. Why it's necessary in the first place. Why he ought to believe it in order to be saved. So both testaments affirm the promise of the gospel. But Paul doesn't stop there, you see. Because he wants us to see the person of the gospel in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here Paul introduces to us the person of the gospel. He tells us that the good news of God actually concerns a real person who is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news of God is all about Jesus Christ, who is the son of God. Now, how can it be, we ask ourselves, that Jesus Christ is both the son of man and the son of God, both a descendant of David as well as a son of God? Well, even though it's quite mysterious, I will admit, we believe this fact because both the humanity and the divinity are taught clearly in the scriptures. Paul makes it very clear that according to his human nature, Jesus Christ was a descendant 
of David according to the flesh. Both Mary, his natural mother, and Joseph, his natural legal, his legal father, were descendants of King David. And as a descendant of King David, Jesus had a legal right on earth to inherit the throne of David and to rule in David's kingdom. A kingdom that was promised by God in the Old Testament to be without end. But the question remains, in what sense is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Well, in verse 4, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in human history when he took upon himself a human body. In his comments on this passage, John MacArthur says, We could say then that Christ was the Son of God from eternity in expectation and was declared God's Son in fulfillment at the incarnation and forever. You see, even though the plan of the second member of the Trinity coming to earth and taking upon himself a human body, it was an eternal plan, even though that was an eternal plan, even before the foundation of the world, the actual title as God's son was reserved for Jesus Christ during his incarnation when he actually took upon himself a human body. It was officially given to Jesus Christ at that time. So when we say that Jesus is the son of God, We are actually referring to his incarnation, to the act of taking upon himself a human body in time in order to live out his earthly life in submission and obedience to God the Father, solely for the purpose of being the perfect sacrifice for sinners. But in reality, Jesus has always existed as the second member of the Trinity, who is one in essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So in loving submission to his father, Jesus was born into a human family. He became fully human in order to identify with our fallen human natures, although he himself was sinless. As such, he is the perfect substitute for sinners, the spotless lamb of God who took upon himself the sins of the world. And this is the very heart of the gospel message. The good news of God to sinners is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself became a man, a particular man, who could die for all men in general as a perfect sacrifice for their sins. Jesus was the just who died for the unjust. Jesus died as the scapegoat who took our sins upon himself and carried them into the wilderness and was forsaken by God on our behalf. By his stripes, we are healed as the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Paul goes on to declare that the most conclusive and irrefutable evidence for Jesus being the Son of God lies in the fact that he was resurrected by God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection of Jesus Christ showed his ability to conquer death, which is a power that only God himself possesses. Therefore, the resurrection was God's very own stamp of approval on the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ during his incarnation here on earth. By resurrecting Jesus, God was symbolically proclaiming to the world 
that Jesus' atonement for sinners was absolutely acceptable in his sight. Person of the gospel. Next, I'd like you to notice that Paul gives us the provision of the gospel. Look at the beginning of verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. At the end of verse 4, Paul showed us how Jesus Christ is the person of the gospel. He, continue here, he continues here in verse 5, however, to explain to us just how Jesus has provided uh, everything for us as believers. He says that through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. Here Paul lists two very important provisions that the gospel, that we receive through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is grace, and the second is apostleship. Now, first of all, grace is what makes it possible for us to have faith, to even believe in Jesus Christ in the first place. But apostleship, in Paul's case, is what he was called to do specifically after he was saved. Paul was called to a particular office of an apostle. We, however, like the Romans Christians and who, who Paul wrote to, have received grace, but we have not been called to be an apostle in particular, like Paul was personally, by Jesus himself on the Damascus Road. But we've been called to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who follow him in obedience to the gospel as well as the proclamation of the gospel. And just what exactly is grace? What do Christians mean to what do Christians mean when they refer to the term grace? Well, simply put, grace is unearned, undeserved favor from God. From beginning to end, it is grace that brings us into God's kingdom. Paul himself was a recipient of grace, if you remember, how on the Damascus Road he was persecuted and killing Christians and seeking to kill them. Now you would think that that would disqualify Paul, right, from serving God. Because, but Jesus showed him grace by saving him from his sin and choosing him to be an apostle, a servant, a man who was chosen for a particular mission and then also empowered by God to complete that mission. So you see, as Christians, we not only need grace from God to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in the first place. That's obvious from the Bible. But what's not, not so obvious to us sometimes as believers is the fact that God's grace is absolutely necessary for us if we are going to successfully live out the Christian life, if we are going to have victory over sin in this life. We need God's grace on a daily basis. Without grace on a daily basis, no Christian would have any hope of having victory over sin or fulfilling God's call for his life. And another provision of the gospel is the very fact that God calls believers who are sinners into his service. For Paul, that was apostleship. The office of apostle was strictly for the 13 men that Jesus himself specifically and personally chose to be apostles. But elsewhere in scripture, we see that Jesus calls us to be disciples, meaning that we have both been given grace and called by him and sent out by him to be witnesses for his kingdom work. The work of living and proclaiming the gospel message. As Christians, we are unofficially 
sent into the world to proclaim to the world the glorious gospel of God, the good news of salvation. And everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and is saved by the grace of God is also called to be a disciple, a messenger of the good news. In his letter to the Ephesian church, Paul told them that Christians are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, God saves us by his grace, but he also commissions each and every one of us to serve him, to walk in the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us. And our good works are not the cause of our salvation, but rather the result of our salvation. You want to have assurance that you're a Christian? Ask yourself, am I walking in the good works that God has prepared for me? And lastly, notice in verses 5 and 6 that Paul tells us the purpose of the gospel. The middle of verse 5. To bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Can you see the purpose of the gospel there? It might not be what you expected. You see, we usually think of the purpose of the gospel as being solely the salvation of sinners. And that's true that God so loved the world that he sent, sent his son into the world to save sinners. But according to the Apostle Paul here in verses 5 and 6, the main purpose of the gospel is not primarily the salvation of sinners, but it's the glory of God himself. Paul says that the gospel is for his name's sake. So the main purpose of the gospel is to display God's glory. In fact, you could say that God's glory is the reason not only for the salvation of sinners, but also for the entire uh, history of redemption as well. So we will spend all of eternity praising God for what he has accomplished in our redemption. But for now, the specific way that we glorify God here on earth is through obedience to his commands as believers. For Paul says that we have been called as believers to the obedience of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that this is an obedience of faith and not an obedience of law. You see, there's a world of difference in saying that as Christians, our obedience to God is the result of our faith as believers, a faith that was graciously given to us by God himself at the very moment of our conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. So our obedience as believers is the fruit of our faith and not the root of it. Now, if we were to say that our obedience to God was the root or ground of our faith in Jesus Christ, then we would fall into the era of moralism, right? Thinking that we're saved by our very own code of ethics, by living by a code of ethics. Paul is telling us that belief in the gospel is the only way to sincere obedience because the gospel alone has the power to not only create faith in the human heart, but to also provide the obedience necessary that flows from faith, the kind of sincere obedience that flows from a heart that's been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel message. You know, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk 
in the Roman Catholic Church as well as a theology professor in Wittenberg, Germany. And he was an extremely religious person who tried very hard to live a life of obedience and self-sacrifice to God. But no matter how hard Luther tried, he could never find peace within himself, peace that he was saved. And although he did everything that the Roman Catholic Church asked him to, he could not escape the idea of God's judgment. And no matter how hard Luther worked, salvation seemed to escape him until one day in his study, he came to these words in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As a result of reading this verse, Luther was converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he commented on that extraordinary moment in his life, later, he wrote these words, and I'll close with this. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself reborn when I understood that and when the concept of justification of faith alone burst through my mind, suddenly it was like the doors of paradise were swung open. And as I walked through, this passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. The power of the gospel message. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for the gospel. The gospel, Lord, that not only saves sinners, but transforms them from within. Transforms their hearts, Lord, from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Thank you, Father, for the power of your Holy Spirit that applies that salvation so hardly fought and won for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us to go out into the world and to proclaim that gospel bravely and boldly to a lost and fallen world. Thank you, Father, that you loved us and have called us to do this. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.